Welcome to ones I know. And um, it's, it's got words in it that are so harsh that even as I was preparing for this morning, I was like, this is going to kind of rock my world to say in front of you all, because it's just so like icky. It's just, it's so intense that it's words we don't often use together. But I'm going to say them this morning, and we'll unpack it all together. So fear not if it's a bit uncomfortable. I, I, I want us to let this stir up in us whatever it would stir up in us in the raw. It's Psalm 109, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you don't have to. The psalmist says, Hold not your tongue, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked, the mouth of the deceitful is opened against me. They speak to me with a lying tongue. They encompass me with hateful words and fight against me without a cause. Despite my love, they accuse me. But as for me, I pray for them. But they repay evil for good and hatred for my love. So set a wicked man against him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his appeal be in vain. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife become a widow. Let his children be wafts and beggars. Let them be driven from the ruins of their homes. Let the creditor seize everything he has. Let strangers plunder his gains. Let there be no one to show him kindness, and none to pity his fatherless children. Let his descendants be destroyed and his name be blotted out in the next generation. Let the wickedness of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and his mother's sin not be blotted out. Let their sin be always before the Lord and let him root out their names from the earth because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy and sought to kill the brokenhearted. He loved cursing, so let it come upon him He took no delight in blessing, let it depart from him. He took on cursing like a garment, so let it soak into his body like water, into his bones like oil. Let it be to him like a cloak he wraps around himself. And let this be recompense from the Lord to my accusers, that those who speak evil against me. Yeah, a tricky one. (laughs) I'm like, whoa. There's like grocery to say out loud. I'm not like socialized to say those things. But this is it, right? This psalm is a major example of what uh, scholars have called imprecatory psalms or cursing psalms, as you can kind of see. They're very 
they're very cursy. They curse a lot. And, and um, they're actually all over the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever stumbled across Psalms that talk about enemies, but they're all over the place. The psalmists loved to pray about their enemies. In fact, as I was reading this um, week, I was hearing, there was one scholar who said that, that enemies can be thought of as the second main character of the psalms, only next to, like, God. They're just all over. The, the psalmists love that. And, and it makes it kind of tricky for me, because I don't know about you, but, like, sure, I have people that rub me the wrong way, certainly. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that I have... And, like, I wouldn't use the word enemies to describe those people. Um, and so it makes it kind of tricky. But the Psalms always talk about their enemies. So this Psalm 2 is about an enemy, right? It's about this guy that the psalmist seems very distressed about, very distressed, um, who supposedly is accusing the psalmist, um, encompassing him with hateful words is what it says, fighting against him without cause, which is truly very annoying. But it takes center stage of the entire prayer. The psalmists talk a lot about their enemies. But I think even weirder than that is the fact that they really talk very unabashedly about their enemies. They are very, very cruel to their enemies in the Psalms. They say horrible things, things that are almost too much for me to say out loud. You know what I mean? The Psalms are not just about green pastures and quiet waters. The Psalms bite. They're harsh and cruel, and they're filled at times with raw anger. Things that many of us would never dare say to even the people who we find the most frustrating because it's just too hateful. The Psalms at times are full of hate. So let me just name for a second what we might all be asking in this moment. We might all be asking the same thing. Why the heck is this in our Bible? You know, like, why is this, like, would we say after this, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God? Would we, would we say these things aloud at all? And you know what's crazy? What's crazy is that this isn't our Bibles. That's insane. Second of all, what's crazy is that up until the last, say, century of the church, all church, all church people, all Christians throughout the millennia, and actually even before that, all Jewish people would, would filter into their churches, into their synagogues, and they would sing through every single psalm, Annually, or sometimes even more frequent than that. They would sing through every single song. They wouldn't leave this one out. And so you can just imagine, these people would be coming into church, sitting beside their, like, grandma, and singing, let their children be fatherless and their wife become a widow. This is what people did. The Christians regularly would gather together to do this. And now it's so far from our imagination as church people. <laughs> the, the tension is real. The tension is real because, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus says things like, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You know, as Christians, we're, we're taught we should 
love even even the people who rub us the wrong way, even, our, even people who might be our enemies. So why is this here? I think one of the ways to start to unpack the tension is to name the fact that we've actually all probably felt some kind of raw anger like this at some point in our lives. Anger is like a totally normal part of life, and I think the, the best way to, to see that is in um, children. You know, like, you know, many of us are parents, and those of us who aren't uh, maybe have nieces or nephews or other people that are little that we um, hang out with, and so maybe some of us have had experiences where, say, we're, um, maybe we're at the grocery store, and we're getting groceries, and we've got a little one with us, and we're picking out foods that's, you know, good for us, and that's affordable, and that's healthy, we're, we're making all sorts of decisions, and then a kid comes up to us, and they're like, I have this... $15 box of sugary cereal. Can we please buy it? And you're like, no, like not today. And they're like, what? And they're like, no. And, and you see them start to clench their fists and look at you with that raw anger <laughs> and start to stomp their feet and stand in place. And maybe they start to yell and they're like, no, I want that sugary cereal. <laughs> and they're, they're exemplifying all the emotions that we read about in the Psalms. And we, what do we do? We stand there and we manufacture calm. But what's interesting is that all, all of us who are in that situation would probably say that, that that kid having a tantrum is probably mirroring what we're starting to feel. You know, like we're seeing all of our neighbors that we hang out with during the week also at the grocery store on Saturday morning staring at us, judging us while some kid goes off and, and you want to yell back. Don't tell me you don't. <laughs> and, and, but you, what you do is you manufacture calm, right? You're like, all right, little one, let's move on. As adults, we, we tend to, to pretend that our anger isn't there. And, you know, I'm not actually a parent, so don't take parenting advice from me. But I would imagine that in that moment, it's probably best that you do that, right? It's best to, it's best to muster up whatever non-anxiousness you can muster in those moments, um, I think. I don't know. Ask a parent. But um, sometimes it's, it's appropriate. But what we tend to do, right, we tend to default to suppressing that anger when it comes. We tend to pretend it isn't there. And the problem with that is, is that anger is part of the inner world that God made for us. It's part of, it's part of our psyche that God designed with intention. And so we need to not always suppress, but certainly steward. Especially because at times anger is really important. Like, I, I don't know if you've seen Inside Out. A cute little show, and and um, there's a character, anger, and um, the the theme that keeps coming up when anger comes about is that anger cares. Anger cares a lot. That's what they always say. Anger cares, and so anger does care. And we might start to notice times in which we're angry at things that we ought to be angry about, right? Like we ought to be angry when we hear of another refugee claimant that can't find housing. 
We ought to be angry that while the most vulnerable in our world are starting to see the effects of climate change, other people are investing in fossil fuels still. We ought to be angry that so many people in our city are not finding housing and all these things are worth caring about. Anger cares. And the psalmists know that. Which is why they don't suppress their anger in their poem prayers that get passed on through the millennium. And as followers of the way throughout history pray these psalms, part of the intention, no doubt, was to be discipled in stewardship of our emotions. And so that's why they would get sung time and again. The psalms are prayers that teach us what much of modern worship can sometimes fail to teach us God bless our modern psalmists, which is that your whole self, your whole self, is welcome before the face of God. Not just your happy, clappy self, not just your zen, non-anxious self, your whole self. The entire anatomy of your human soul is welcome before the one who made you with all your anger, with all your raw hatred when it comes up, all your upsetness at the way things are, all of it is welcome before the true God, the God who is God. Your deep well of care for the oppressed, all that is not reconciled within you, all your doubts and questions, all the parts of you that you might not even feel you can take with you to church, which is the most upset, upset of all, the one place you would imagine you can bring your whole self, that, those parts of you you can't bring with you, you can bring with you to God in prayer. All of you is welcome. All the saints and mystics throughout history testify when they seek God to finding a God who welcomes every part of them, who loves every last piece of them. You don't need to be polite with God. You don't need to sanitize yourself before the true God. So what the Psalms teach us is that when seeking the true God, the God who is God, the best prayers are honest prayers. I think that what has made the psalm so tried and true throughout the ages is their rawness. There, there's at times raw joy, raw bliss, raw awe and wonder, and there at times raw anger, raw lament, raw grief, raw sorrow. The psalms are tried and true because they utter the unutterable. They're brutally honest. And so we've been talking about the Psalms for about a month now, and I don't know what it's been bringing up for you. I don't know if psalm chanting has been your jam or if it's just been kind of weird for you, whatever the case may be. I want to offer you a takeaway for this morning as we are kind of at the halfway point of our psalm series, and that's this. What the Psalms teach us whether or not you're ready to use the Psalms as a tool, of course we're encouraging people to, but whether or not you use them as a tool, what the Psalms teach us 
that you can take with you into whatever form of prayer works for you is that the best prayers are honest prayers. That the God who is God wants to love your honest self, not your made-up manufactured self, not your um, sanitized self, not your polite self. The God who is the true God wants to love your whole self. Eugene Peterson, who Kevin quoted at our invocation, he says this, he says, we must pray as we really are, not as who we think we should be. We should pray who we really are, not who we wish we should be. And so I invite you to be honest before God, whatever that looks like for you, and see if you don't find yourself meeting a God who welcomes every bit of you. In fact, I, I want to I dare you to do something if you're up for it. I want to dare you this week, if you need to, if you need to, I dare you to get angry at God. I, I do, I dare you, I don't mean to, you know, wish conflict or, or strife in your spiritual life, but if you need to, I dare you to dig into him and give it. I, I, I dare you to pray this psalm if you want to, Psalm 109, to carry it with you, to pray every last word of it, if you need to. I dare you to get mad at God because I think that too often, I think that too often we can be conflict avoidant with God. Yeah, I think that sometimes we can be conflict avoidant with God. I think that when we're mad at people we care about, maybe our spouse or someone else, like we know you're supposed to, you're supposed to address it. But so often when we're mad at God, we maybe start to take a step back. Maybe start to pray a little less. Maybe stop, stop doing the, the spiritual rhythms that work for us. Maybe we hold scripture at bay. I think for many of us, myself included, there are times where I'm frustrated or upset or maybe even have some anger weaved into my spiritual life, my relationship with church and God and rel religious systems, and it's just hard to know what to do with those very normal moments that we all have in our spiritual life, because I think we're just not really discipled in how to navigate those tricky tensions. I mean, I, I think that part of it is that often in our corporate worship, we, we don't sing our angry songs. <laughs> like, we don't. We, we sing happy, clappy ones. And more than that, I think we live in a whole world that doesn't know what to do with anger or grief or hatred. I think we live in a whole world that seeks to sanitize, and I think the church has unfortunately taken part in that. So whatever the case may be, I think it can be tempting when, when we, when I feel frustration and anger to, to step back quietly, to take a break, to wonder what to do next from a distance. But I dare you this week to experiment with leaning all the way into God when you're angry, to lean all the way in, to, to maybe start to pray more, not less, to turn off the radio when you're on your commute and just give it to God. Just give it to him and see, see if he doesn't take you seriously.
See if he doesn't wrestle back. This is what the patriarch has experienced. There's one, Jacob, who wrestled with God all night long. And you know what God did? He wrestled right back. See if God doesn't do that when you give it to him. That's my challenge for us. I'm going to read the last piece of this psalm. I didn't read the whole thing as we close our time. Here's the second half of Psalm 109, jumping from where we left off. The psalmist says, but you, O Lord my God, O deal with me according to your name. For your tender mercy's sake, deliver me, for I am poor and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I have faded away like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is wasted and gaunt. I have become a reproach to them. They see and shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Just save me for your mercy's sake. Let them know that this is your hand, O Lord, that you have done it. They may curse, but you will bless. Let those who rise up against me be put to shame, and your servant will rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrap themselves in their shame as in a cloak. I will give great thanks to the Lord with my mouth. In the midst of the multitude, I will praise him. Because he stands at the right hand of the needy to save his life from those who condemn him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's really interesting about the Psalms. In all their raw honesty, in all their grief, their anger, their lament, their true frustration, all but just, just a couple, just a few, do end in praise. And I don't think that that's manufactured praise, you know? I don't think that's them finally sort of suppressing their anger again. I, I think that if, that if that were true, I mean, the psalmists, they're so honest. They probably wouldn't end in praise if they didn't feel it. I think that there's something worth naming. It's worth naming the fact that what the psalmists and praying people throughout the ages have found time and again is that when they lean in, when they give it to God, when they get angry at him, when they lament at him, when they, when they dig into him, and they share all of it with him, the very act of expression, the very act of expressing all that becomes the dark tunnel through which they find the light on the other side. I think the act of uttering the unutterable propels them forward to see the bigger picture. 
to watch their things of earth becoming strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. This is the good news for all of us who choose to wrestle with God instead of shrinking back. The one with whom we wrestle, this God who is God, this true God, is also our Savior and Redeemer. Yahweh, the one to whom we offer all our anger, is the one who reconciles all things. And he is the one who promised that he's making all things new. He's, he's making new our housing. He's making new our earth. He's making new all the things that are currently wrong in this world. He's, he is going to reconcile all things. That is his promise to us. And he is the one who grants us inner peace that passes all understanding, even in the midst of the process, even when all is not yet right in the world, in the midst of the multitude. As the psalmist says, we will praise him. Amen.